Let's pray. Dear Father God, we're here this morning just wanting to stop and listen to you, Lord, and listen to your words. Speak to us, Father, from your word and open our eyes so that we may see you. Open our ears so that we may hear your voice and mostly open our mouth to speak boldly of your good name and your goodness and your glorious works in our lives to those around us. God, I ask you bless my sister, sister's hand who we're holding and meet her needs this morning, Lord. I pray that you use me now as a vessel to share your word and that nothing of me be said but only of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, before we get started, I'm, I want to set the stage for all of us to understand where were the Israelites at this time of chapter 10. As if we can remember back in chapter 9, back when Connie last taught us, they were repentive of their sins. And so now they're making that new covenant with God. And so, as so many times as we have repented of our foolishness, we make that promise again. So I'm just going to play a song for you right now. And I just want you to just close your eyes. You can sing it if you know the words. And um, let's just reflect just for a moment. Hold on a second.
So the people, once again, were making a covenant with God. And they took seriously their responsibility to follow God and keep his laws wholeheartedly. Now, how many of you here have made a promise and kept it? How many of you have made a promise and didn't keep it? Okay, I can tell you one right now. I made a promise again every year to do the Bible in a year. And I thought, okay, Lord, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this Bible in a year book. I went out and bought the book and highlighted it and got it a pretty little cover for it. And I could only get seven days into it because, you know, like Connie had told me, it was more of a ritual, not heartfelt. But we want to look here because chapter 10 was heartfelt. Coming from chapter 9, they saw their sin and they repented. The children of Israel were assembled after the wall was completed, after the wall was working, after the people had heard and obeyed God's word, after the Holy Spirit was doing, um, well, the Holy Spirit wasn't with them, doing significant work in their lives, you know, um, just the, the, the knowing, the knowledge of what they needed to get back into. Now there was a scene of dramatic and humble repentance. And so, What's the important step that we see here in Nehemiah chapter 10 is that they came together in unity. We want to make a covenant. We want to sign the covenant. Lord, we want to put our name on paper. We want to walk in covenant. We want to renew the covenant of God. You see, the children of Israel needed to come to this place where knowing who God is and knowing who they were Remember when they were weeping upon hearing the law of Moses read by Ezra in chapter 8. And prior to that, they had just did the census, the record of genealogy. So by now, they know who they were and they know who God is. With most of them being born in captivity, that didn't mean they kept the law. Some of them, as we read earlier in these chapters in this book, heard the law for the first time, the law of Moses being spoken We see here that they came and made a covenant with God, even writing it down to commit themselves to his ways, almost like a promissory note or a New Year's resolution. So prior to our lesson this morning, what has happened? Let's just catch up for just a second. We saw in chapter 1 the call of Nehemiah. We saw in chapter 2 the go and get it done. We saw in chapters 3 and 4 teamwork and cleaning up your own house. Chapter 5, the outcry of the people from within, selfishness and exploiting others for personal gain. We see that there were those using their own people for personal gain, taking advantage of the less fortunate or vice versa, maybe the less fortunate, taking advantage of their own brother and sister. Chapter 6, intimidation from the enemy, undermining each other. Chapter 7 and 8, raising up leaders and appointing positions, coming together. Chapter 9, we saw confession of sin. And now a repentant nation gathers. So by now in chapter 10, we see that the wall was completed. And the agreement 
God had made with his people in the days of Moses was restored. We're going to see four promises in chapter 10. One, the promise to not marry non-Jews among our daughters and sons. The promise to observe the Sabbath. The promise to be faithful in supporting God's work. And lastly, the promise to not neglect the house of God or the temple. So if you open up your Bibles, let's look at chapter 10. Backing up to verse 38 in chapter 9. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting in in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Chapter 10. Those whose sealed were Nehemiah the governor, son of Hakaliah, in the list of names. Then verse 9, the Levites. And again, another long list of names. Jumping down to verse 28 and 29. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nephinim, the Nephim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. So let's look at that real quick. Now the rest of the people. 84 mentioned previously sealed the covenant. But the rest of the people, that is everyone who had knowledge and understanding, also made that covenant. You see, you don't have to have a high position to make a covenant with God. You can make a covenant of God with who you are and where you are. He wants to meet you where you're at today. They entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. In making the covenant, they agreed to accept a curse from God if they did not obey his law. They accepted the curse as a form of his correction to bring them back to obedience. In our day, we can make a covenant, say, like a credit card or a car purchase. We sign our name on the dotted line, promising to the rules. Our signature also states that if I should fail at keeping my promise, I will accept the consequences given to me. And we all know in which in most cases, where does that land you? Into a collection agency or repo. So this is exactly what they were accepting from God, a curse in a form of correction. Now let's look at the first promise. The first promise we see in verse 30 We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. The NIV translation says, we promise not to give. We would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land. This promise was addressed to the parents. This is because in that day, parents made the marriage decisions, not the people getting married. This also preserved the important principle that the A follower of God should only marry another similar committed follower of God. Today we teach our children, or at least we try to teach our children, to be equally yoked, as our Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians, 
but by experience and observation, it is important to teach our children to carefully and prayerfully choose their spouse. But sometimes that's not always the case, and we have to trust God with our children's decisions. The whole idea of marriage is closely connected to the idea of a covenant. Malachi 2.14 says, Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Marriage is a covenant between the husband and the wife, between them and all family and witnesses. But most importantly, it's a covenant between them and God. When we understand marriage as a covenant, we have something to bond us together that is stronger than society's expectations, more constant than romantic love, and more certain than happy times. We have a covenant. And so the relationship with Christ is to be like that of a marriage covenant. And also he, the importance of our homes. So why is our home the very first thing God wants us to correct or take seriously? Because if we can't get our home in order first, everything around us will not be as important. If we can easily break the rules inside our home, then it's so easy to break the rules outside of the home because our commitment is very laxed, living on the fence. Our home is where we feel safe. Our home is where we have our prayer time. Our home where the walls and doors around us are keeping us protected. And also nobody can see us when we are in that safe place. Are we transparent in our homes as opposed to stepping outside where we're exposed? So then what is the rules? What does that measuring stick look like? Our obedience to God's ways, just like in Nehemiah's time, is for us today the same, keeping that covenant, which is very hard. I say for myself, been there, done that. God wants that to be the very first thing we work on, ourselves with him first, then our spouse, and then our children, and then our families. Our second promise that we see is in verse 31, we will be faithful to God when it comes to doing business. If the people of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. So under the Old Testament law, God said that no one could buy or sell anything on the Sabbath day. These citizens of Jerusalem had been breaking this law, and they now covenant with God to obey it. So the motive for breaking this law was so clear. They could make more money selling on seven days than they would on five or six days. Now this can be a very touchy subject and very critical, because we live in a world now where sometimes we have no choice but to work on Sundays. I've worked on Sundays for three years at the camp. My two kids to this day work on Sundays. My husband has worked on Sundays for 20 years in the car business. Our own church and facilities employ on Sundays. But it's also very important, ladies, that when we look at the scripture in its context and we understand that the motives of the people to work on the Sabbath were clearly a heart issue. If I can make more money working seven days a week than five, then I will. Working on the Sabbath for the sole only purpose of making more money over and beyond what God has already provided us with 
and over and beyond what I need. That was their heart issue right here because they knew they could make more money. That is what the scripture is telling us. The people recognize that the lure of money would conflict with the need for a day of rest, keeping the Sabbath holy. Many of us, I myself was guilty, as was true in Nehemiah's day, slip into these practices rules subtly. We don't wake up in the morning saying we're going to cut corners and cheat others and steal from my sister and pretend that this and defraud the system. We do it because we think we need to. Bills need to be paid. The kids need things and so on. Then we do it because it works. But we don't really need to. If we trust God, he will take care of us. We should never trust our slick ways of doing business more than we trust God in heaven. The people were dedicating themselves to observe the word of God in their business life as well. Next, we're going to see the third promise in verse 32. We will be faithful to God when it comes to supporting God's work. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbath, the new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites and the people, for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written by in the law. So basically what they did here was they laid down a yearly tax to support the workings of the temple. They required people to bring wood to the temple on a rotating basis. Nehemiah made sure that this was the business of the congregation to come together as a unity of people. Verse 35, And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites. For the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. Here we see 10% of the produce of the land went unto the house of God. The first fruits of the ground were given to the Lord as an acknowledgement of his status of landowner. God owns everything that we have. Everything that we have. He is the landowner. The firstborn of all animals also belongs to God. The promise of first fruits of all trees means they were going above and beyond the requirements of the law. And the promise to pay the priests who were not working the land for a living but attending to the needs of the people. They were in need of daily living needs, just like today. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. 
So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The scripture tells us all, and all means all. And so if we find ourselves in a time of our life where we're on retirement and we get that monthly check, all means all. So give 10% of that retirement. Give of our best to God and he will take care of you. Verse 38, and the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine and the oil, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. So here again, the firstborn and the first fruits were risky ways to give because your land might not yield as much as your neighbor's land, and your cow or your sheep might not give birth again. Yet the first still belonged to God and was given to the priest. God promised to bless this giving of the first fruits and Firstborn in faith. First Corinthians 16, the New Testament speaks with great clarity and the principles of giving that it should be done regularly, planned, proportional, and private. And that it must be generous, free given, and cheerful in Second Corinthians. Since I'm sure none of us here in this room own sheep or goats... <laughs> This would, ra- this would refer to, um, obviously, um, like I said earlier, our paychecks or anything income coming in. Our first belongs to God. And that also means the first thing when we wake up in the morning, our first breath, our first word, our first prayer, everything belongs to God first. Even if at times you find yourself all you can do is lay in bed, and you know you need to get up and you just need to pray there, that first Thank you, Lord, for seeing me through the night and for your protection. Our fourth promise, we will not neglect the house of God. In Nehemiah's day, the house of worship was where? Where was the house of worship? In the Bible days. The temple. Yay. Where is the house of, where is God's temple now? It's in us. It's within every believer If you're here this morning and you're a believer, guess what? You are the temple of God. He resides in you. You don't have to go anywhere no more. You can go right where you are. You can stay in your pajamas. Who said that? Who said that at that? Didn't we just hear that? A pajama day with God at the retreat? Didn't we just hear that? A pajama, pajama? Yes, huh? We did. Pajamas. Have a pajama day with God. The leadership meeting. So, yes. Let's find our fourth promise. We will. Well, we did. We just did that with the neglect of house. Now, we are not to neglect God's temple. That is ourselves. Okay, ladies? So, we are t- the God's temple. If we leave him in his ways, guess what? He's not going to reside in there until we come back and we make new that covenant. And sometimes, in my case, sometimes it has to be every morning. Okay, Lord, thank you for giving me another day to start afresh. Don't look back on what I did yesterday or how I talked to my husband or how I talked to my child or how I disrespected my friend. 
let me let me do another promise. And, we, and that is God's grace. Moving on to chapter 11. Out with the old and in with the new, right? The new residents of Jerusalem. In chapter 11, we see Nehemiah establishes a new policy. Remember the exiles who returned were few in number compared to Jerusalem's population in the days of the kings. How many of you here are watching the AD on Sunday nights now? Do you see that temple on last Sunday that they just tried to, the um, apostles tried to get out the gate? Did anyone see that part? That is the temple we're talking about. Okay? So I recommend you watch that show. It's really good. The population in those days of the kings were enormous amount of people. And because the walls had been rebuilt on the original foundation, the city seemed sparsely populated. Nehemiah is going to ask the people from the outlying areas of the city to move inside the walls to keep the large areas of the city from being vacant and vulnerable to the enemy attacks. We can see that some people did not want to move back into the city only a few people volunteered. And so the people were chosen by casting lots. Casting lots is the same thing as drawing names. In my house, it's rock, paper, scissors to see who's going to go first. And if you got the longest straw or if you got the last rock, paper, scissors, everybody else was like, mm. I don't think anybody was saying, I'm going to bless you for going first. This is clearly seen as in the days of Nehemiah and in today's time that not everyone is willing to go first and move into the city. Not everyone is willing to go first to the missionary fields. Not everyone is willing to get involved in areas of ministry or in areas of need concerning the church as a whole. Only a handful of people volunteer. And why is that that we ask? Is it commitment? Is it exposure of where the heart is? not wanting to leave their comfort zone, going to church just enough to check it off my list, but don't ask me to do more. That was myself. I was quite happy from the outside looking in. I was quite happy driving by and saying, I go there. I go there. I was quite happy at VBS dropping off my kids and being back in time to pick them up, but don't ask me to do anything else. They had their fears and their doubts just like we do today. Chapter 11, verse 1, Now the leaders of the people dwelt in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who were willing, who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. It wasn't enough to see the city walls rebuilt and the spiritual renewal of the people of Jerusalem. Now they concerned themselves with getting more people into the city. For a city to prosper and be great, it must be populated with a new temple built under Ezra and the walls rebuilt under Nehemiah. The city still needed more people. Many of them have not wanted to live in the city because it meant having to rebuild a house or a business. Living in Jerusalem meant stricter obedience to God's word because of greater social pressure and proximity to the temple. Living in Jerusalem meant commitment. 
Nehemiah, Nehemiah also knew the bigger the population of Jerusalem, the greater resources for defense and strength in the battle. He didn't rebuild the walls just to see some conquering army come and break them down again. And that's where we are today. We need to come inside the walls, inside the will of God, and strengthen ourselves. We also notice that it was good that the leaders of the people set the example by living in Jerusalem. They had no right to expect the people to live in Jerusalem if they themselves were not living there. So one out of ten, the rest of the people submitted themselves to a lottery system where one out of ten would be selected to move from the surrounding regions into the city of Jerusalem. And let's look at, let's look at real quick how we to dwell at Jerusalem. If such a blessing is reserved for those who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem, there was something special about that challenge of living in there. To live in Jerusalem, you had to reorder your view of material things. You had to give up land in your previous region and take some kind of new business in Jerusalem. To live in Jerusalem, you had to rearrange your social priorities, certainly leaving some friends and family behind in your old village. To live in Jerusalem, you had to have a mind to endure the problems in the city And that is very hard to do. That is a very tough skin to come on. It had been a ghost town for 70 years, remember, and was now basically a slightly rebuilt, somewhat repopulated ghost town. The city didn't look all that glorious, and it still needed work. To live in Jerusalem, you had to live knowing you were a target for the enemy, stepping out of the... um, stepping out of the outside of walls and going into God's will, you now become a target for the enemy. There were strong walls to protect you, but since Jerusalem was now a notable city with rebuilt walls, the fear was more from whole armies than bands of robbers. The old village was nice, but not in much danger from the great armies. The Bible tells us in Revelations 21, there is a city coming down, from heaven to earth, when God is done with this earth as we know it to be, and he calls that city the New Jerusalem. People don't want to be citizens of the New Jerusalem. For the same reasons, many people did not want to be citizens of Nehemiah's Jerusalem. The rest of chapter 11, I'm just going to highlight real quick for the verses and for time's sake. In verse 12, The work of the house, I like to say, refers to the jerrys of the temple, attending to the sacrifices of the temple. Verse 14, mighty men of valor, refers to the men who guarded the city of Jerusalem. Verse 16, the oversight of the business outside of the house of God, refers to the maintenance of the temple, including repairs, again, like the jerrys of the church. Verse 19, the gatekeepers were also defenders of the city. 22, Uzi, the overseer of the Levites, basically an administrator. Verse 24, the king's deputy was a representative of the people. He may have received petitions and complaints to the king. So Nehemiah 11, 3 through 24 are the leaders who lived in Jerusalem. This extensive list includes tribal leaders, 
of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, military men, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, and civil and royal servants. We estimated about 800 to 1,000. Basically, a lot of people volunteered to work within the house of God. All these noble, notable men and their families took the lead by choosing to settle in Jerusalem, setting a good example for all God's people. And so you ask yourself this morning, choosing to lead by example. So now an ending. Our Bible verse this week is perfect for an end of our study. We will not neglect the house of our God. So now, ladies, with all the new and excitement changes going on around us, let's move inside the city of Jerusalem, inside God's will, inside the walls. Let's be protectors of the city. Let's do God's work, making sure we guard the walls. Let's pray always. Let's be watchful for the enemy's attacks. And they're going to come. And they're going to get in like a little snake or a little area of a cracked armor. Let's wear our armor all the time. That the arrows of the enemy will bounce off our shields. And finally, let's lead by example. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, Reading about Nehemiah in the city of Jerusalem takes us right to this place where we are today, Lord. Our hearts are heavy and are burdened. Help us to find that joy, Lord. For it also says in your word in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Help us to be ready to volunteer, to see the need, to protect your temple, which is in each side of us, Lord, here today. Strengthen us with your word because you said... Again, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Bless our small groups today, Lord. We love you and lift your name up and guide our path and guide our mouths, Lord, and help us to anything that we say and do be uplifting to you, Lord. And we just want to bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen.